Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased and honoured to introduce His Excellency, the Right Honourable David Johnston, the 28th Governor-General of Canada and a remarkable Canadian. Since October 1, 2010, he has enthusiastically embraced his role as the Crown's representative in Canada and the Commander-in-Chief of the Canadian Forces. He travels across the country and around the world, representing our interests to citizens and to world leaders. Our Governor-General enjoyed a long and distinguished career at some of the country's leading universities before assuming his position as Governor-General. He began his professional career as an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at Queen's University before moving to the law faculty at the University of Toronto. He served as Dean at the Faculty of Law at then the University of Western Ontario, now Western University, and was named Principal and Vice-Chancellor of McGill University in 1979. In 1999, he became the fifth President of the University of Waterloo. His Excellency has served on many provincial and federal task force and committees on the boards of a number of companies, and he was the first non-American chair of the Board of Overseers at Harvard University. He's the author or co-author of two dozen books, one of which I understand he's currently updating, not as we speak, but almost in real time. I saw him writing, I couldn't resist. <laughs> he holds honorary doctorates from over 20 universities and has been awarded the Companion of the Order of Canada. His Excellency studied at Queen's, Cambridge, and Harvard. His academic specializations include securities regulation, information technology, and corporate law. He is a model of service for all of us, and we are delighted to have him here. Now, before I formally invite him to the stage, I did want to let all of you in the live audience know that he has graciously agreed to take questions from you after the speech, so think ahead and get ready for that. And now, Your Excellency, the Canadian Club of Toronto Podium is yours. Thank you, Alison. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, um, my great uncle, who died at age 97, heard an introduction like that one time, and he muttered to me, sounds to me like young fellow like you can't hold a job. <laughs> I want to acknowledge the presence here today of a great Canadian. John Turner is over here at this table. John, raise your hand. No one loves Canada more than John, and no one has done more to show that love for Canada. And I'm so pleased on May 27th that Rex Murphy will be here to speak about the Order of Canada, Stories Behind the People. That's such a precious institution, you know, it's so Canadian. We abolished titles in 1919. It took us till 1967, our 100th birthday, to figure out a way to honour those citizens who simply contributed to the betterment of the country. The motto of the Order of Canada is they desire a better country. They desire a better country. It brings to mind that lovely expression I use so often from George Bernard Shaw. It goes this way, some people see things as they are and wonder why. We dream of things that ought to be and ask why not. My coat of arms, which we had to do when I took on this job, uh, has one two-word slogan, and it's contemplare meliori, they dream of a better country. I'm so thrilled to all of you, and I'm so grateful to the Canadian Club of Toronto for giving us this opportunity to gather together. This is a truly revered institution, 115 years. 
It's been a platform for generations of Canadians to meet, to share ideas, and to mobilize our talents and resources to find responses to the most pressing concerns of our times. And this very Canadian spirit of open-minded, collaborative problem-solving brings me here this morning. Le jour de mon installation en tant que gouverneur général, j'ai clairement expliqué que je considère mon mandat comme un appel au devoir. J'ai aussi indiqué que mon épouse Sharon et moi désirons réunir les Canadiens de tout âge et de tout horizon en vue de créer une nation abertie et bienveillante, a smarter and more caring nation, keener minds, kinder hearts. Une nation avertie et bienveillante était même d'appuyer les enfants et les familles, d'encourager la philanthropie et les bénévolats, et de privilégier l'apprentissage et l'innovation, learning and innovation. Ces piliers ont une chose en commun, l'inclusivité. L'inclusivité peut être personnelle et qualifier une relation entre des individus ou des petits groupes de gens ou institutionnel. À l'échelle internationale, l'inclusivité est déterminée par la façon dont nous créons nos institutions publiques. Au Canada, nous avons établi des institutions politiques et économiques sans pareil qui permettent à nos citoyens de réaliser leur plein potentiel, d'apprécier une véritable liberté et de vivre une vie enrichissante, satisfaisante et éloquente. Since I entered into this task 30 years ago, Sharon and I have been encouraging Canadians to examine very closely the fundamental principle of inclusivity and its application in concrete manners in their own lives, in their communities, and in their cities. We hope that we can celebrate our 150th anniversary of Confederation in 2017, knowing that we have made Canada a place where our families can live and work and rise together with a great sense of opportunity. And the three pillars of family and children, learning and innovation, philanthropy and volunteerism for a smart and caring nation are central to that. Let me focus on just one aspect of those three pillars with you today, and only one half of that, learning. Learning has been a personal passion and professional preoccupation of mine for 45 years. Matter of fact, I went to university at age 18, and I liked it so much that I never left it. I'm on one. <laughs> I'm on a one-year leave of absence from my law firm. John, you'll appreciate this especially. I used to go each year and get a one-year extension on my leave. Now it's about every five years. And they said when they gave me the one-year leave 45 years ago, when you've got the courage to face the real world, come and we'll teach you how to practice law. <laughs> and when I go back to them now and say, just remember, when I've got the courage to face the real world, you're gonna they're terrified. The, uh, my whole life then has been a university professor, and uh, I had, when I was asked to do this job, I thought, you know, before you die, you better do a real job. And uh, guess what? This is just as much fun as the previous one. Uh, my thoughts have been consumed by um, how men, women, youth, and children gain, expand, and use knowledge. And I often say that sovereignty in the 21st century will be, will be determined not by the size of one's GDP or the size of the fleet or the air force or the munitions that you can assemble, but it will be determined by how well a nation 
permits each individual to expand their talent to the fullest and just beyond, and then puts that knowledge to use for the improvement of the human condition. The past two and a half years have given me a very different perspective from which to view my ideas and gain a greater appreciation of the history and the current state of learning in Canada and its value to Canadians into the future. And so I'd like to share some of these reflections with you in the hope that in the great Canadian club tradition, my thoughts will provoke deep discussion and creative solutions by Canadians. Analysis and inaction are needed. We cannot be content with the state of learning in Canada. We must aim higher, and that's why I call this address Greater Aspirations. First, our education system, while it performs well to other countries, and we should be very proud of that, is uneven across our country. We must make sure people of all ages, regions, incomes, and backgrounds have access to the people, tools, and resources that make education consistently current, practical, and above all, inspiring. Second, we're being undermined by our own complacency. When we permit good enough to be our goal, we have no incentive to assess our performance regularly so we condemn the state of learning in our country to drift steadily downward. We must combat complacency by striving for excellence in the way we teach and learn and by applauding and profiting from those who achieve excellence, by applauding and profiting from those who achieve excellence. In this great Canadian equality of opportunity system, we must be sure that equality of opportunity and excellence are reinforcing concepts, that we can have both rather than exclusive concepts. Third, we're being carried ahead by the galloping pace of technological change and uncovering vast amounts of new knowledge about learning, particularly in the workings of the human brain. We must embrace this new knowledge and technological change and use them to propel learning in Canada. 90% of what we know about the human brain we've learned in the last 20 years. When I think of learning and change in all its form, I'm reminded of the words of writer Eric Hoffer. He wrote that, in times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Since all times are times of change, Hoffer's brief sentence prompts us to appreciate that education must always prepare learners for the world that's coming. In this way, his words echo what business executive Alfred Perlman said many, many decades ago. Learning is what most adults will do for a living in the 21st century. So, exactly what goals must we set for ourselves with regard to learning? Hugh McLennan, one of our country's greatest novelists, once called Canada a nation of losers. It was a salute, not a slur. He meant that many of us, I would say almost all of us, came to Canada from abroad with no status, with no property, many fleeing war, hunger, or oppression in their homelands to make better lives for themselves and their families. We have six William Curlick paintings in the foyer at Rideau Hall. Curlick was the prairie artist who, in fact, dealt with insanity through many periods in his life. And the first painting shows a Ukrainian village, 1925 or so, and a little girl is going barefoot out into the snow, mother sending her out the door <clears throat> with a begging bowl. And at the back of this village scene, you see the soldiers coming, up, coming in to round up the men and take them off to wherever they took them. Then the next painting is at Pier 21, a ship coming into Halifax Harbor with these people with their shirts on their back and a bag looking to the new land back in the old with enormous hope and a great deal of uneasiness. And then the third, la third, third picture shows these settlers with someone who's come before in a partially cleared field 
with a lot of trees to be cut down and to homestead the farm, and then two or three others until the final painting, 20, 25 years later, is a magnificent grain farm with the grain up to here, farmer holding it. They've received a degree of bounty. The earlier one shows the kids going in a school bus to school. But because Kurlick always left us a message, up in the top corner of that last painting is a mushroom cloud, just to remind us that, that all of this is fra fragile. I cannot tell you how often I've taken people through that series of paintings, and by about the third painting, the tears are running down their cheeks. That's my grandmother, that's my grandfather, they say, and that's, of course, Canada. Canada <clears throat> the most important avenue for advancement and success for generations of Canada has been public education. Just think of that. Our system of public education has been that fundamental platform for this equality of opportunity. And it didn't come about by accident. It wasn't just handed down. We Canadians, stage after stage, decade after decade, made it a priority and worked hard to bring it to life. In my mind, harder than any other nation. The great thing about Canadian education is how inclusive it is, from kindergarten to post-secondary institutions. We Canadians and our ancestors for generations before us made a deliberate choice. We chose not to use education to perpetuate elite groups or ruling class. As a result, we made public education a path to success for generations of native-born Canadians and wave upon wave of immigrants. Equality of opportunity and learning has also enabled whole communities to flourish. Our pioneer ancestors knew its power. They were quick to build churches and schools as soon as the land was cleared and the barns and the homes constructed. The seed of this wisdom was sown in generations that followed right up to our very own. As a teacher, administrator, executive, I've seen and experienced the power of public education to transform lives and enrich our country. The last little experiment I was involved in for 12 years in the county of Waterloo was a wonderful example of those institutions coming together, the educational side, the government side, and the business side. Most of the successes that I've enjoyed in my life spring directly from the high-quality education that I received. And yet, this path to success is closed to many Canadians. We lack full equality of opportunity and learning. The caliber of education in some regions of our country falls well below that of other regions. The same holds true for the disparity between many remote as opposed to urban parts of Canada. The resources available to richer districts within metropolitan areas are often much greater than those at hand in poorer ones. Barriers to learning confront visible minorities and new Canadians. And we continue to fail to recognize and take full advantage of the educational and professional qualifications of recent immigrants. Most troubling is the large segment of children who are failing through no fault of their own to use their education as springboards to personal fulfillment and career success. Let me just give a little statistic here, and this is a difficult one, so put your thinking caps on. The young kids over here and here will have this right away. Older brains have to work at it. Levels of education can be broken down into five categories that range from primary to post-secondary. Canadian children exceed their parents' levels of education at a higher rate, higher rate in the top five categories, the top four categories of five. In those categories, our country is among the best performers in the world when it comes to enabling our children to outperform their parents. Success in learning breeds further success. So if you happen to be a child in the top four-fifths in terms of educational qualification, not only will you meet or exceed your parents, but you'll do it by a considerable gap compared to other nations. And now the bad news. The 
of the lowest level of education attainment of the parents. The opposite is true for children of parents in the lowest segment, the lowest 20% of educational attainment. These children are far less likely than other children to exceed their parents' level of education. And among the OECD countries, where we lead the pack in the top 80%, um, we are one of the worst performers when it comes to enabling children in this category to outperform their patients. And in a moment, I'll speak about one segment that makes this glaringly so. So if we look at learning as a game of snakes and ladders, the 20% of children in this bottom category are sliding further down while their peers and other groups are climbing. We must rec recommit ourselves to the idea of equality of opportunity in learning. By Canada's 150th birthday in 2017, we must close the gaps in learning between remote and urban, rich and poor, new and native born, and make sure all children, whatever the educational levels of their parents, are in a position to enrich their lives through learning. We must ensure all Canadians get a first-rate education and use it as Hugh McLennan's nation of losers as a path to success. I spoke earlier about some of the persistent gaps that exist in learning in Canada. The gap in achievement between Canada's Indigenous and non-Indigenous people is so vast that it's a chasm. This gulf leads me to an inescapable conclusion. Despite many committed educators and some great successes, Aboriginal education has failed First Nation communities, failed Canadians, and most of all, failed First Nation boys and girls. This fact saddens me deeply. First Nation children and young First Nation men and women have endless amounts of talent, creativity, energy, and drive. And yet a high number of First Nation students drop out of school and the number is climbing. Sadly, the situation is not much better for those who stay in school. Far too many graduates leave school without the basic knowledge they need to qualify for skills training, let alone go on to college or university. And this failure means many young First Nation men and women are unable to get jobs, start careers, contribute to the growth and prosperity of their communities. And what makes this condition even more troubling, because the solution is in sight, is many young First Nation men and women live in communities located in resource-rich areas of Canada where skills shorties are especially acute. On another level, the glaring inequality in educational outcomes between First Nation and non-First Nation people undermines the inclusiveness of our political and economic institutions, our businesses, governments, laws, diminishing our country and preventing it from reaching its full potential. So what must we do to ensure more First Nation students stay in school, graduate, get quality educations, and are prepared to make meaningful contributions to their communities and countries? Well, we must first come to grips with the reasons why Aboriginal education is in such a state. We in Canada are managing an educational system that doesn't work, rather than showing the leadership needed to create and sustain a system that does work. When I say we, I mean all of us, First Nation and non-First Nation alike, educators, non-educators, those in our governments and those outside them. And I'm not here to point the finger of blame at anyone. I simply want to help Canadians arrive at understanding and find solutions. My experience has taught me five lessons. First, we must ensure every decision our schools and school authorities make and every action they take serve students and make their education as authentic, accessible, relevant, and broad-minded as possible. Second, we must make sure all players in the system are encouraged to experiment and take reasonable risks. Encouragement comes through rewarding experiments and risks that produce results by not penalizing good intention new approaches that fail and by enabling men and women to learn what works from their peers. Third, we must encourage all schools and school authorities to search for partners who can help further our mission of building high-quality schools that graduate every single student with the knowledge they need. 
These partners can range from individual elders to nearby provincial school boards to large private sector organizations and companies. Fourth, we must hold ourselves accountable for the decisions we make and the actions we take. When we don't hold ourselves to account for our failings, we have little incentive to change course. Accountability is the engine that drives adaptation and eventually improvement. And fifth, we need to discard stereotypes and old views and recognize the people who live with us today, who speak to us from the headlines, who are asking for opportunities, inclusion, and respect. My views echo some key findings and recommendations of the report of a three-person panel on kindergarten to grade 12 education for Canada's Indigenous people that was chaired by Scott Haldane of the YMCA. Panel members have shown the leadership we need, blazing a trail toward a system a First Nation education that can close the gaps in graduation rates and learning outcomes between First Nations and non-First Nation students. By Canada's 150th birthday, just five years off, we must walk confidently down that path. Excellence should also be our goal throughout our educational system. No reason exists why we in Canada should not enjoy the finest learning environments in the world and produce the most fertile minds in the world. Equality of opportunity and learning enables us to nurture those original minds by expanding and thickening the critical mass of ingenuity from which high achievers can emerge. We must also take action to celebrate exceptional achievements in teaching, learning, and research. We fulfill a series of special responsibilities when we illuminate the extraordinary achievement of our finest thinkers. Let's put aside that joke of the lobster fisherman who was on the wharf in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, and he had a pail of lobsters there open and the tourists coming by say, hey, good man, be careful now, the lobsters are crawling up and they're going to get out of your lobster pail. He says, ah, oh, lad, don't worry. He says, these are Canadian lobsters. As soon as one starts climbing up, the others will pull them down. <laughs> well, let me suggest this. We must inspire the emerging generation of young Canadian scholars to intensify their work. We must speed the transfer of knowledge across borders and disciplines, enabling it to be tested, shaped, and refined into timeless wisdom. We reveal the impressive power of teaching, learning, and research to find answers, solve problems, and improve lives. And we must frustrate the creation of a pervasive culture of anti-elitism that can suffocate aspiration and achievement. Competing for and winning international prizes is one key way we promote excellence in learning in Canada. I recently convened a group of 11 eminent Canadians to uncover fresh approaches that we can follow to encourage and then support Canadians to compete for international prizes in learning, research, and innovation. One of those 11 is John Dirks of the Gardner Foundation. John, where are you? Just hold up your hand so we can recognize you. John's over there. John chairs uh, the Gardner Foundation, uh, which is a remarkable Canadian foundation that recognizes uh, excellence uh, in health sciences and medicine. Now, what do you have? Do you anticipate about one third of the Nobel Prize winner by two or three years, John? Do I have it approximately right? That's right. There we are. Well, that, that's the kind of pinnacle of excellence, of course, that we want to celebrate in this country. And the purpose of this group of 11 is to try to identify more Canadians and to promote their candidacy for international prizes. My wife and I take every opportunity of our own to promote extraordinary achievements in learning. Earlier this week, nearly 200 guests joined Sharon and myself at Rideau Hall as we honored this year's winners of the Kiln Prizes. We celebrated the accomplishments of the five laureates in such a public way to illuminate exceptional successes in learning for all our country and the world to see. 
and Bernie Luft of Ideas, that CBC program that's had about a 50, 55-year run. Very few North American radio programs have had a run like that. Just think, ideas are sustainable, eh? They don't have to be in and out. Um, broadcast uh, a symposium of the uh, Killam Prize winners uh, uh, last year for uh, reproduction on, uh, on CBC's ideas, and it'll be done again this fall. Yet I realize this celebration of excellence merely begins our efforts to produce an education system of unparalleled excellence. We must take action across the full spectrum of learning, from preschool to the highest echelons of research, from structured learning to an all-encompassing culture of lifelong learning, and especially taking advantage of the communication revolution through which we're living. We should step up our game in international education and outlook. We should encourage greater innovation in our post-secondary institutions. We should reconsider the schedule and purpose of primary and secondary education. Why are we still linked to the agricultural season? Huh? The best months of the year to study in Canada are May, June, July, and August, and we give everybody a holiday. We must create a sound Canadian Head Start policy for children under the age of five. It's interesting that Canada does some of the best research in the world in early childhood education. We know it works. And yet we're amongst the last to embrace this in the kind of interventions that make so much sense. We must develop new ways of learning that take full advantage of emerging new information and communication technologies. We're a leader in this business. We're the BlackBerry folks. Uh, we have these opportunities right in front of us. We must find better ways to move people from school to work and better ways to equip people with the skills they need to thrive in modern workforces. We must use our emerging understanding of the workings of the human brain to foster enhanced learning methods, especially as these methods apply to children with learning disabilities and special needs and those with special strengths. In the months and years to come between now and our 150th birthday, we Canadians must continue this discussion and begin to craft approaches and solutions for the challenges I've raised here today. I don't profess to have all the answers. As scholar Martin Palmer pointed out, the secret of mastery in any field is to forever be a student. So let us take those wise words to, those wise words to heart. Let us all remain students in spirit as we aim higher, as we aspire to reach greater goals for learning in our country, as we continue on our shared mission of building the smarter, more caring nation we all hope for and dream of. Let me just end with this. As you hear what I have to say, all of you are conscious of things that you're doing in your individual lives, whether as parent, as volunteer, as school board member, of things that do advance learning. And yet sometimes you may have the feeling it's just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't, it's not enough. It doesn't have critical mass. Let me just leave you with a story uh, which will encourage you to think that those drops are important. But 25 years ago, Mother Teresa spoke at the uh, Greater Prayer Breakfast in Montreal. And after she finished a very stirring address, most of the newspapers were very laudatory and said, this is a marvelous woman, she'll probably become a saint. And of course she was. But one newspaper, taking a kind of rail politic view of it, said, um, we applaud her work. Uh, she's established a settlement house in Calcutta that feeds about 200 people, provides some shelter, and they are removed from the misery that surrounds them in, the school, in, the, in their city. But let's be practical. That's 200 people in a city of 20 million people, most of whom, at least half of whom, live in the most abject poverty you can ever imagine, in a country where poverty is so widespread it's overwhelming. So while we applaud her work, said the newspaper, it's really just a drop in the bucket. It's just a drop in an ocean, an ocean of need. That bothered me for the longest time, and I finished a birthday party at our home, and birthday parties were big deals. We have five daughters in seven years. And at the end of one of the birthday parties, the oldest two girls came up and said, Dad, we've got something to tell you. What is it, dear? 
Well, you know the birthday party we just finished? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know the ghost stories that you tell all the kids? Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't believe you. They know they're all lies. They only pretend to be scared because they know your feelings will be hurt if they don't get frightened. Why can't you be like Dean McFarlane? He does magic at birthday parties. Well, Dean McFarlane was Andy McFarlane, the dean of the School of Journalism at Western. I was the dean of law and had bloody Andy McFarlane showing me up in the eyes of my children and their friends. So I went to the McFarlane home a few months later for a birthday party. And lo and behold, there was Andy McFarland dressed in a big top hat, a flowing cape. He had a wand and a mustache on curling like that. And he was doing magic. And the kids were mesmerized. So I get here so I can watch what's going behind the scenes. And he holds up a glass of water like this. And he said, glass of water. I will turn this water into wine. And I thought, careful, Andy. The last guy that did that was 2,000 years ago with a little more authority than you have. And so while holding the glass there, Behind here, I could see that he took out of his sleeve a small eyedropper. And in it, he had one drop of red vegetable coloring dye. He brought the glass behind here, dropped the drop in it, put it back out front, all the clear liquid. You could just see a little drop of red there. And then he said, abracadabra, and he shook it up. And of course, that clear liquid was suffused with a beautiful color of rosé. And all of a sudden, the light went on in my head. I had been thinking of that drop in the bucket, that drop in the water, from the point of view of physics and mathematics as relative volume, one little drop with all of those other drops, when I should have been thinking of it as chemistry, that little red molecule interacting chemically with the other H2O molecules in that glass of water and suffused them all, changed their culture. And that's what we want to do with the culture of learning in Canada. Yes, Thank you very much, Your Excellency. And thank you also for being kind enough to uh, take a few questions from the audience. I'm, of course, tempted to ask you to tell us a ghost story, uh, but <laughs> we'll see if that comes from the crowd. Uh, we have very few uh, rules here at the Canadian Club, but we do have a couple when it comes to questions. Uh, the first is that we would just ask if you would identify yourself, uh, please. And then secondly, just to remember Alex Trebek's word of wisdom to phrase your comments in the form of a question. <laughs> Thank you. My rule no, is that here. any of the difficult questions will be answered by my colleague Stephen Wallace over here. <laughs> and, and I just say that uh, that's an in-joke with Stephen. I usually tell it with the Einstein story. Einstein, for one period in his life, thought if only people knew more science, the world would be, would be wonderful. So he went on a popular lecturing lecture series, and he'd take all the invitations. It was so popular that he had a chauffeur, and he was driving in from, from Princeton one night to give an address. And he said to the chauffeur, I'm exhausted. This is the 21st night on the row. I can't do it anymore. The chauffeur says, boss, I'll do it for you. I've heard you give the speech a thousand times. I could give it in my sleep. Besides, I look like you. I'm kind of short, fat, dumpy, and I cut my hair up like that. Do you think you can? Yeah. So they arrived at the auditorium, and Einstein put the chauffeur's cap on, lounged in the back seat. The chauffeur gave the lecture so beautifully, he finished with about a minute to spare. So the MC said, we have time for a question. The gentleman in the back row stood up. 
gave the preamble to his question that drove a question four through Einstein's theory of relativity <laughs> and then posed the question. And the chauffeur hesitated for a moment and then he said, my good sir, that question is so elementary I'm going to ask my chauffeur over here to answer it. <laughs> Well, who wants to ask the first question now? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Diane Freeman from uh, the City of Waterloo. Um, Your Excellency, at your leadership conference last year, one of the things that we talked about was Darwin's theory of uh, or Darwin's theories of evolution, where he said that um, those that are most resilient to change um, will actually be able to affect change. And I wondered if you could talk about that quote with relationship to the divide that you, you spoke to between First Nations and non-First Nations education. What a lovely platform. It shows what a great friend Diane is of mine, a graduate of the University of Waterloo and an older person in, uh, in our community. The, the quote exactly as I do it is it's from Darwin. It's not the most powerful or the strongest of the species who will survive. It's the most resilient. And, of course, you'll learn resilience in learning. And what's the beautiful thing about learning today is that we have more data available than one could ever comprehend. More data has been accumulated in the last 20 years than in the previous 2000. So the challenge, of course, is to move from data to information to knowledge and to wisdom. And that takes critical thinking. And it takes a kind of resilience that permits one to adapt uh, to the new circumstances and to new information. I learned the other day that as, as we're understanding the human brain, one of the things that makes for intelligence is more clustered networks. That is, two brains might have the same number of neurons, but the pathways that connect them, if they become more clustered, uh, in fact, lead to better connections and better knowledge. And so this notion of, and that's a resilience. I'll just tell a story to illustrate that, Diane, rather than trying to respond to all parts of your question. One, I love to, to tell the story of the Internet, uh, because the Internet is a lovely swords and plowshares story. The Internet was begun uh, in 1957 after one of the most challenging circumstances imaginable occurred. The Russians put Sputnik up. The Americans responded under the President Eisenhower by starting their uh, um, interstate roadway system to connect the nation. But Eisenhower and his colleagues began DARPANET, which was a fail-safe communication system so that if a bomb dropped on New York or Washington or Colorado Springs, they wouldn't lose their system of connections, that they would have other pathways. It was a spider web of, of communications. It was resilient. It could respond to any, any circumstance. But that was a sword only to be used in the most dire circumstance imaginable, an atomic bomb, later a hydrogen bomb falling in the United States. So it was also the most secretive, closed system imaginable, only to be used in calamity. Well, then, because it was there and was working better, more resilient than other systems of communication, um, the uh, military used it for classified information. And then they used it for the classified communication with scientists and universities working on classified projects. And then they began to use it for their unclassified projects. And then it got in the hands of their graduate students. And the game was over. Because as you know, graduate students are the most irrepressible, unbounded, creative spirits imaginable, the courage of the innocent. And that's how the internet came into being, and that sword became a plowshare, a great instrument for peace, a kind of resilience in the physical sense, but a resilience in the sense of tapping into ideas around the world. And of course, that's the great promise we have of this age, that now knowledge is so widely available 
It can reach every corner of the world relatively inexpensively. And those nations and those societies that understand those opportunities and can put them to the benefit of improving the human condition will do very well. Great, here, here. And yes, please. Hello. Hello, my name is Sherry Campbell. I'm with Frontier College. Uh, we work uh, in numerous First Nations uh, communities across Canada doing education work. And one of the things I worry about when we work with children and youth is a jurisdictional issue, that the children are, are on, uh, on reserve, so it's a federal jurisdiction. They inevitably move to the provincial education system. But the system is not child-focused. Uh, thoughts on how we begin to advocate that those systems become child-focused and therefore be more successful? Well, it's such, such an important problem, Sherry. Let me be a little careful that I don't slip into politics, because in this job I can't. Um, the last time Queen or King or King's representative got into that, it was Charles I going into the House of Commons and his head was taken off. <laughs> um, but, you know, the jurisdictional maze is one that we have in a whole lot of different systems. And we'll solve it best, I think, by by pulling together the best of the local initiatives and trying to coordinate them in some kind of seeing things whole without suppressing the individual initiative. Just to move from, from that file to another that I know well, I chaired a task force for the Ontario government four or five years ago on um, adoption and infertility. One of our huge problems, a, a crime, is uh, we only place about five, about 7% of the children we take out of homes at risk uh, to make them wards of the state. We only place 7% of those in permanent loving homes. The other 93% of those kids go through the foster system and are kicked out at age 18, make your own way. And one of the fundamental problems there is we have 53 different children's aid societies in Ontario alone. And there's an inability to share the information of, of one area that might have uh, more children than there are parents available to adopt in another system that have more parents interested in adopting than children. Just that simple connection isn't there. And that's within one province. And then, of course, the 10 provinces don't share those needs and opportunities. And there are a whole series of jurisdictional, policy, non-incentive kind of things that just make it impossible to achieve that overwhelming objective of a child who's been removed from, from their home because they're at risk into a, an amorphous system and never find a permanent loving home. And it, it behooves us as Canadians who've learned to work together over large distances to build a country uh, we're, uh, we're short on history and long on geography with instruments like a railway and a telecommunication system and so on to do it, uh, to get at that. And I think we will get at it best if we don't say it, it's so-and-so's job, it's Department of Aboriginal and Northern Affairs job, it's Provincial Minister of Education job, it's the job of all of us to get together. And, uh, with respect to the matter that you point to, the lack of educational opportunity for Indigenous children, that we make that our goal to turn it around. Thank you. And we have time for one last question. Thank you very much. Hi, uh, Jane Wu. I'm here as an alumni of the TD Bank Scholarship Program and a recent graduate from Queen's. And um, I'm kind of curious, with rising cost of tuition, um, increasing unemployment among youth, um, and also, I think, to your point, uh, greater access to knowledge on the internet, I'm curious what your thoughts on um, higher education will be in Canada and how it's going to evolve and change to suit these um, I guess changing landscapes. So I'm just kind of curious on your take on what will happen to higher ed. I think the second last thing I read this morning was a conference at Harvard and MIT uh, on um, on the one hand um, 
the uh, mass organized operate, offering courses uh, on the one hand, available to the world, and the residential college on the other, the two extremes. And uh, it's interesting that this conference took place at Harvard and MIT because those two institutions, amongst the best brand names in education in the world, have put up on their web and made available at no cost not only their course syllabi, MIT did that about five or six years ago, but actually the discussion in the courses, the inter exchange, et cetera, all of the rich things that go uh, behind a particular course. So you can take microelectronics or microelectronic circuits from MIT entirely online at no, car, no charge. They don't give you an MIT degree, but they certainly give you something of quality. It's so interesting to me that, that probably two of the institutions that do the best job of residential education, all students at Harvard are in residence for their four years, et cetera, uh, are also been the most uh, ambitious in exploring these new ways. Uh, you know, that's great leadership, I think. And being prepared to see their methods of education become redundant or go out of date. Um, and, and realizing that the best form of education is in that San Francisco expression, Mark Hopkins and a student on either end of a log, or Socrates with his four or five students. And that's the best form when you have intensive interaction. But when you can't have that, we have an opportunity to use these new platforms. One of them is to have the MIT lectures on uh, microelectronics or calculus and then organize your on-campus uh, discussion groups uh, to deal, deal with the problems. We've been slow to do that. Uh, I chaired a, chaired a task force for the uh, Council of Ministers of Education of Canada with Government of Canada participating back in um, about 1998 on e-learning. And uh, we had a, what we thought was a wonderful program where all 10 provinces were together. And it was one of the few occasions where the provinces actually invited the feds to the, to the table uh, to, uh, to get together on the study. And, and the chair of the council that year was a terrific minister of education from Saskatchewan. We were ready to go, and then the chair reverted to another province that was not enthusiastic about federal-provincial cooperation, and the thing went right down the drain. We did a similar exercise, Bonnie, you'll remember, in Ontario about 2001-2002, and again, we were looking for a relatively small amount of money, essentially to share courseware to begin the MIT Harvard experience. And we ran afoul of very limited education budgets, and the only way it could go ahead was to carve out money from already stressed budgets uh, to put into something new. And so we didn't have the opportunity to do the innovative thing. It's those kinds of things that we simply must do. We just must free ourselves from the shackles of the conventional ways of doing things and be much bolder. Thank you. Thank you very much. I can tell he was a former athlete leaping off the stage before I can even get over. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, Your Excellency. And I'd now like to invite my colleague from the Canadian Club, Don Newman, to formally say thanks. See, you have to be competitive and jump up on the stage, too, when the Governor General does that. <laughs> but that's probably the only time I'll do it, and you do it all the time. But, uh, Excellency, it is my honor to, on behalf of the club, uh, thank you for being here today, and um, to point out that, as you correctly identified, the Canadian Club uh, is here to provoke discussion and to raise important issues, and you today, sir, have done that, if I may say, in spades. You have... You have outlined a problem, you have recommended a course of action, and you have set a timeline 
for, if not achieving the final results, at least making progress on that problem and resolving it. Uh, you have correctly, I think, diagnosed that we are complacent in Canada, particularly about our education, and you have underlined the point that good enough is not good enough. You have indeed uh, raised the issue of Aboriginal education in a way that encourages us, hopefully, to start making progress on that, uh, what is, I know you believe, a national, huge national disappointment. Some people would go further and say a national shame, but which is also a way of moving forward the entire country by involving Aboriginals and raising their educational standards in a way that heretofore we haven't been able to do in uh, skilled trades and doing important work in the country. Uh, you have provoked the discussion and you hopefully now will lead us to discuss and work towards finding the solutions to the problems you've identified. We are particularly lucky to have you here today and I think all of us would agree that since 1952 in the first Canadian Governor General, the role of the Governor General has been to represent the best that is Canada and the best of Canadians. And you, sir, I tell you, on behalf of our club, fill both of those jobs in an excellent way. Thank you for coming to Toronto and speaking to our club. Thank you, Don, and, and thank you once again, Your Excellency, for your thoughtful uh, comments and for, uh, as Don said, leading us to a country of, of keener minds and kinder hearts. Now, this formally concludes our television programming, which will, as I mentioned, be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. And we remain very grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continuing coverage of Canadian club events. You can learn more about the club by visiting us online at canadianclub.org. And now uh, I would like to ask everybody to please rise, if they would, for the departure of His Excellency, the Right Honourable David Johnston, Governor-General of Canada. And thank you to all of you for joining us today, and our meeting is adjourned. Have a wonderful afternoon.